Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, Krista Pike. But first, your true crime headlines. In Georgia, the suspect in the Atlanta area massage parlor shootings has now been charged with eight counts of murder. A day after the shootings, investigators were trying to uncover what may have been the motive for 21-year-old Robert Aaron Long to commit the worst mass killing in the U.S. in almost two years. Long told police that Tuesday's attack was not racially motivated. He claimed to have a sex addiction, and authorities said he apparently lashed out at what he saw as sources of temptation. Speaking at a news conference, Captain Jay Baker of the Cherokee County Sheriff's Office said that investigators had interviewed Long Wednesday morning. They got the impression, he said, that, quote, yes, he understood the gravity of it. He was pretty much fed up and kind of at the end of his rope, and yesterday was a really bad day for him, and this is what he did. But those statements spurred outrage and widespread skepticism given the locations and that six of the eight victims were women of Asian descent. The shootings appeared to be at the, quote, intersection of gender-based violence, misogyny, and xenophobia, said State Rep. B. Nguyen, the first Vietnamese American to serve in the Georgia House and a frequent advocate for women and communities of color. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms said that regardless of the shooter's motivation, quote, it is unacceptable, it is hateful, and it has to stop. A man who spent 15 years in prison is suing over withheld evidence. Donald Outlaw had already spent over a decade incarcerated for murder when he found out that the man he was convicted of killing had told police with his dying breath that someone else, named Shank, had shot him. Outlaw filed a federal lawsuit Wednesday against the city of Philadelphia and the two detectives who investigated the killing of Jamal Kelly in 2000. The lawsuit is just the latest example of justice now being sought over faulty or crooked police investigations and prosecutions in the city from decades before. 21 people have been exonerated in Philadelphia since the end of 2016, 18 of whom were released after investigations by the Conviction Integrity Unit since 2018, when District Attorney Larry Krasner took office. Outlaw's attorneys allege the city and its police department turned a blind eye to unconstitutional practices by homicide detectives, withholding evidence that indicated someone else's guilt, and intimidating and paying witnesses to provide false statements that hampered Outlaw's ability to get a fair trial and violated his civil and constitutional rights. Mr. Outlaw's wrongful incarceration was the direct result of egregious misconduct by defendants, his attorneys wrote in the lawsuit filed in the U.S. Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Defendants improperly used their power and position to coerce witnesses into making false statements and identifications, and to offer sworn testimony that they knew to be false. The attorneys wrote, 
Defendants also withheld exculpatory evidence that would have demonstrated Mr. Outlaw's innocence and deliberately disregarded information and evidence that would have demonstrated flaws in the case against him. At Outlaw's trial in 2004, four years after Kelly was killed, the victim's dying declaration that Shank did it was never disclosed. Statements from four witnesses who had recanted or said they signed but never read the officer's written statement were still read to jurors, with prosecutors claiming Outlaw had intimidated them out of testifying. The lawsuit names two detectives, Jeffrey Pyree and Howard Peterman. Pyree investigated the cases of three other men exonerated in recent years by the Conviction Integrity Unit of the Philadelphia Prosecutor's Office. A city spokesperson said city officials had not seen the lawsuit and could not comment, but confirmed that both detectives were, quote, not current city employees. Human remains found last year in a wooded area of Chicago's western suburbs have been identified as an Aurora mother who was reported missing in 2003, and her death is being investigated as a homicide. Aurora police said Tuesday that Illinois State Police's crime lab identified 22-year-old Taisha Bell's remains through DNA analysis. The skeletal remains were found in December, with clothing and personal items in a shallow grave in a wooded area of Kane County. Police declined to say exactly where the remains were found, how they were found, or describe how Bell died, citing the ongoing investigation. Police said that they have always suspected foul play. Because Bell had left her money and purse in her apartment, she also left the television on and candles were burning in her bedroom, all signs that she had planned on returning. Police questioned a person of interest early in the case, but no one was charged with a crime. Aurora Police Commander Jack Fichtel said, quote, Our detectives continue to have working theories in Taisha's case, but we need more information before criminal charges can be authorized, and that's where the public comes in. Police are asking that anyone with information call Aurora Area Crime Stoppers at 630-892-1000 or email tips at aurora.il.us. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Krista Pike. But first, a quick break. Here at Murder Minute, we focus on the facts and skip the chit-chat. But sometimes, there's more to the story. Conflicting reports, rumors, theories, unverifiable witness accounts, and more. Now, you can join us live every Saturday as we dissect and discuss every detail during our weekly Murder Minute post-mortem, only on Stereo. Stereo is a free live broadcast social platform that enables people to have real conversations in real time. On Stereo, you can ask me questions about the case, tell me your theories, and even suggest stories for future episodes. 
Murder Minute is excited to offer you this killer new way to interact with us. Join us Saturdays at 3 p.m. Pacific for a live Murder Minute postmortem only on the Stereo app. Download the free Stereo app and select Murder Minute so that you can connect with us whenever we are live. Just go to Stereo.com slash Murder Minute to get started. That's S-T-E-R-E-O dot com slash Murder Minute. And stay tuned for more details on how to join us on Stereo at the end of today's episode. My cat is my best friend, and these days we've been spending a lot more time at home together. And as much as I love her, I'm not fond of the stink bombs she leaves in her litter box. Everything from cleaning to covering up the smell is a constant battle. That's why I use Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter is kitty litter reinvented. Unlike traditional litter, Pretty Litter's super light crystals trap odor and release moisture, resulting in dry, low-maintenance litter that doesn't smell. And Pretty Litter is virtually dust-free because it's manufactured with a specialized de-dusting process. Less dust and no fuss. And Pretty Litter arrives safely at my door in a small lightweight bag that lasts up to a month. Perfect while we're social distancing. Now that I get litter bags auto-shipped, I don't have to deal with last-minute trips to the store. And shipping is free. But above all else, Pretty Litter is this pet parent's hero because it's a health indicator. Pretty Litter monitors my fur baby's health by changing colors when it detects potential underlying issues. You won't find that kind of innovation in conventional litter. Get the world's smartest litter without leaving home by visiting prettylitter.com and use the promo code MURDERMINUTE for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com promo code MURDERMINUTE for 20% off. What are you waiting for? Get it right meow at prettylitter.com promo code MURDERMINUTE. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Krista Gale Pike was born in West Virginia on March 10, 1976. Krista had a difficult and unstable childhood. Her father, Glenn Pike, wanted nothing to do with her. Her mother, Carissa, was a party girl who was more interested in drinking and drugs than she was in raising a child. So Krista was brought up by her grandmother, who was, according to other family members, an abusive alcoholic. But when Krista was 12 years old, her grandmother passed away. And from there, Krista Pike was passed back and forth between her mother and her abusive boyfriend's house and her father and his new family. At one point, Krista's father kicked her out of his house because she was suspected of sexually abusing his two-year-old daughter from his second marriage. According to an aunt, Krista's mother, Carissa's house, was dirty. She set no rules for her daughter and smoked marijuana with her, apparently in an attempt to bond. Within a few years, 
Krista had dropped out of high school and was arrested for shoplifting. She could be sweet and loving one day and then in trouble the next, said Krista's mother, Carissa. It was just an ongoing battle with her. For her crime of shoplifting, Krista Pike spent a month in juvenile detention. After her release, she joined Job Corps, a government program aimed at helping troubled low-income youth by offering them vocational training and career skills. And in 1994, at age 18, Krista moved to the Job Corps campus in Knoxville, Tennessee, and began training to become a nurse technician like her mother. But instead of focusing on her studies, Krista Pike focused on her new boyfriend, 17-year-old Tadaryl Ship. Tadaryl was a Satanist, and Krista began to share in his beliefs. Like Krista, Tadaryl came from a troubled background. Raised by a single mother, he also dropped out of high school in the ninth grade. When Tadaryl began associating with known gang members, his mother pushed him to enroll in the Knoxville Job Corps, where he enrolled in the Culinary Arts program. According to fellow Job Corps students, Krista and Tadaryl's relationship developed quickly. He protected me, Krista would later say. He was probably the first man that I ever had in my life that wanted to protect me that saw me as, you know, a treasure, something good, instead of something to use and toss to the side. The couple bonded over their mutual interest in Satanism and the occult, or rather, what one expert would later describe as an adolescent version of it. It was an obsession that drew in other Job Corps attendees, including one quiet girl the couple befriended, named Shadala Peterson. But Krista also had an enemy, 19-year-old Colleen Slemmer, a pretty, enthusiastic girl from Jacksonville, Florida, who came to Job Corps to study computer technology. But within three months of her arrival, Colleen found herself being bullied by Krista, Krista Pike was convinced that Colleen was hitting on her boyfriend to Daryl and trying to steal him away from her. Colleen had no interest in to Daryl, but Krista wouldn't let it go. On at least one occasion, Colleen woke in her dorm room to find Krista standing over her menacingly. Krista frightened Colleen so much that she called her mother and said that she wanted to come home. Colleen's mother told her that she couldn't leave Job Corps. She'd signed a contract, and she had to stay there. What she didn't know was that Krista Pike was more than just a bully. In order to rid herself of her rival, Krista convinced both Tadaryl and Shadala that Colleen Slemmer had to be, quote, sacrificed in the name 
of Satan. That little whore has to be taught a lesson, she told to Daryl. On Wednesday, January 11, 1995, Krista told her friend Kim that she was going to kill Colleen because, quote, she just felt mean that day. Kim dismissed it as just talk. But the next night, at around 8 p.m., on Thursday, January 12, 1995, Krista Pike, to Daryl Ship, and Shadala Peterson invited Colleen Slemmer out to the woods in Tyson Park to smoke some marijuana as a peace offering. Colleen agreed, and the four students signed out of the dormitory and began walking deeper and deeper into the secluded woods. Colleen could sense that something was wrong. When she asked if they were really going to smoke weed, Krista attacked. She pulled a box cutter from her pocket and slashed Colleen across the stomach, hands, and chest. When Colleen tried to run away, Krista and Tadaryl dragged her back, kicking and beating her. Then, Krista handed the box cutter to Tadaryl and pulled out a small meat cleaver. Tadaryl then carved a pentagram into Colleen's forehead and her chest. They toyed with her. They played cat and mouse with her, recalled homicide investigator Randy York of the Knoxville Police Department. They would let her get up, and she would beg for her life. At one point, she told them, just let me go, and I won't say anything. And they said, you know we can't do that. For over half an hour, they tortured Colleen. The bitch won't die, Krista said. So she picked up a large chunk of asphalt and bashed her head in. As they left, Krista picked up a piece of Colleen's skull as a souvenir, and the three walked back to campus. At 11 p.m., Krista went to her friend Kim's dorm room and told her that she had done it. To prove it, she showed Kim the piece of Colleen's skull. Kim would later testify that Krista danced laughed and sang as she recounted the killing, describing in gruesome detail how she had forced Colleen to remove her shirt and bra, beat her, slashed her throat, and carved a pentagram into her flesh. When Kim saw Krista at breakfast the next morning, she asked her what she had done with the piece of Colleen's skull. Krista replied, that it was in her pocket. And yes, she said, I'm eating breakfast with it. Krista bragged to other students, too. Later that day, she told the story to Stephanie Wilson and pointed to her feet, saying, quote, That ain't mud on my shoes. That's blood. On Friday the 13th, Colleen Slemmer's body 
was discovered. And within 36 hours of her killing, the three were arrested. Even without Krista's open bragging, the logbook showed that the four of them left together, but that only three returned. Detectives found the piece of Colleen's skull wrapped in a napkin in Krista's jacket pocket. A search of their rooms turned up Krista's blood-soaked jeans. A copy of the Satanic Bible was found in to Daryl's room. On January 15, 1995, Krista Pike was interviewed and confessed to the crime in detail. Initially, she claimed that she just wanted Colleen Slemmer to, quote, leave her the hell alone, and that they were only planning to scare her, but things got out of control. Krista then led the authorities to the trash bin where she dumped Colleen's ID and gloves. She even took the police to the crime scene, retracing their steps and describing how the murder played out. At one point, she recalled that as she slammed Colleen's head into the concrete, she asked, Why are you doing this to me? But the more Colleen pleaded for her life, the angrier Krista got. When Colleen promised to return to Florida without even returning for her things, Krista told her to shut up because, quote, It's harder to hurt somebody when they're talking to you. Krista's confession, after it was transcribed, was 46 pages long. I knew exactly what I was doing. Everything I did that night, I knew what I was doing. Krista would later say, I think I was taking out on her things that had happened to me years ago. Fourteen months later, Krista Pike was on trial for murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Krista's attorneys argued that she suffered from diminished mental capacity, but were unsuccessful. Dr. Eric Engham, a clinical psychologist, testified that while Krista Pike did have very severe borderline personality disorder, a dependency on cannabis, and depression, she suffered from no symptoms of brain damage or insanity. He found her to be a, quote, extremely bright young woman, whose IQ tested at 111, which is in the 77th percentile. Remarkable, Engham said, considering her upbringing and the fact that she was a high school dropout. Dr. William Burnett, an expert in Satanism, also testified that while there were some Satanic elements to the crime, it was more indicative of an adolescent dabbling in Satanism. The murder was more an act of collective aggression than it was an actual sacrifice. The defense called members of Krista's family to testify to her difficult childhood, but it made no difference. After just a few hours of deliberation, 19-year-old Krista Pike was convicted of capital murder 
and conspiracy to commit murder. And on March 30, 1996, she was sentenced to death. She was the youngest woman in the United States at the time to ever receive the death penalty. After she was sentenced, Krista Pike wrote a letter to Daryl Ship. It read in part, quote, Please write me. I miss you so much. You see what I get for trying to be nice to the hoe? I went ahead and bashed her brains out so she'd die quickly instead of letting her bleed to death and suffer more. And they fucking fry me. Ain't that some shit? Please write me and tell me what you're feeling. Also, tell your lawyer if he wants me to testify for you, I will. Love you for the rest of my life. She signed it, Little Devil. To Daryl Ship was also convicted of murder and was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole after 25 years. Shadala Peterson testified for the state and in exchange for her testimony, she pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact and was sentenced to probation. In August of 2004, Krista Pike was convicted of attempted first-degree murder for trying to strangle a fellow inmate, Patricia Jones, with a shoestring. Days after the attack, she called her mother and laughed as she recounted the attack telling her, quote, I wrapped that shoestring around her and tried to choke the life out of her. She was passed out on the ground, Mama, twitching, foaming at the mouth. Her eyeballs were bugged out so far her eyelids were flipped up. In March of 2012, Krista was the center of a prison escape plot involving then 34-year-old Donald Kohut who frequently visited her, and a corrections officer, Justin Heflin, who lost his job for his role in the conspiracy. Today, Krista Pike and her attorneys have exhausted all of her appeals. In August of 2020, the state of Tennessee filed a motion to set her execution date. Krista Pike is currently the only woman on Tennessee's death row. The state hasn't executed a woman since 1837. This has been Murder Minute. For True Crime Anytime, download the Murder Minute app and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Murder Minute. Join us this Saturday at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our weekly Murder Minute postmortem. Hear more about the case, tell us your theories, ask questions, and more. Only on Stereo. Stereo app users can engage with the platform to listen in, seek out topics, and join conversations about issues and ideas that interest you, like comedy, pop culture, lifestyle, sports, and of course, true crime. Stereo can be downloaded for free by Apple and Android users. Once you've downloaded the app, create your avatar and profile, 
so that you can send me audio messages in real time. Join us as we unpack the case live every Saturday at 3 p.m. Pacific. Our weekly Murder Minute postmortem is only on Stereo. Download Stereo free and get started at Stereo.com slash Murder Minute. That's S-T-E-R-E-O dot com slash Murder Minute.